You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Saturday, April 12th, and we are live from Nexus 2014. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. Evan Bernstein. Hello, New York. And we have a special guest joining us this week, Dr. Paul Offit. Paul, welcome back to the Skeptic Stack. Uh, Dr. Offit, of course, as everyone knows, because he, uh, he's already given his lecture here at Nexus, he is a pediatrician with a specialty in infectious disease. He's a co-inventor of the rotavirus vaccine and the author of many books um, debunking myths about vaccines and promoting good science under scientific understanding of vaccines and medicine. So again, welcome back, Paul. I really appreciate it. So our, uh, the episode that we do from Nexus every year is always our Perry DeAngelis Memorial episode. You know, as longtime listeners of the show know, uh, we lost Perry a number of years ago. Uh, he was one of the founding rogues of the SGU. His presence had uh, really a, a dramatic effect on the character and the quality of our show. Uh, we tried to keep his, his memory alive and really try to keep, you know, who Perry was alive through the podcast and always remembering the role that he had to play. So uh, we take this moment to remember our good friend Perry. <laughs> Rebecca, so this show will go up on April 19th. What happened then? I would love to tell you what happened then. Lots of stuff. Uh, but one thing in particular that I thought we could all appreciate. In 1971, April 19th, was the launch day of the world's first, or I guess I should say the solar system's first, uh, <laughs> space station. And I think it's right up there. It's called the, um, is it pronounced Salyut? Salyut, I think. Salut. Salut. Well, it's uh, the Russian word for salute, yeah. so something along those lines. The, the salute one. And yeah, it was, it was launched on April 19th. It, um, wasn't the most successful space station in history, but it did pave the way for, uh, the next big project that they did, which was Mir. But the Salyut one was launched unmanned, and a couple of days later, they sent up a ship, uh, with three crew members to board the space station, but they forgot the front door key. <laughs> so. Oops. They, no way. Did they knock? Yeah, they knocked, but there was nobody in there. So, yeah, no, okay, so not exactly, but they, um, managed to dock with the space station, but then the latch, um, the hatch, I should, I should say, was stuck, and they couldn't get inside the space station, so they just went home. <laughs> just, oh, really, really, what happened? They just went home. <laughs> they really? went home, yeah. They the, didn't have any duct tape? <laughs> I don't think duct tape fixes that. I think that's the one thing. Rebecca, that's the on. one thing. Like a that hammer might have fixed yeah. it, I guess. Um, they did send up wow. another crew a short time later, and they were able to get onto the space station 
Um, they spent about 30 days on board, and then they came home. And unfortunately, something went wrong on the return trip. And uh, because at the time, cosmonauts didn't wear full protective suits when reentering, they all perished. Uh, you know Do you know what happened? Would it catch on fire? Yeah, there was like, I think there was a wiring Heat shield, Heat shield issue or wire. Or was it wiring? I, okay. I think so. But uh, speaking of things that paved the way, that paved the way for important safety regulations to come. And I forget what happened to the salute itself. Did it oh, just burn it up on reentry? Yeah, um, it only lasted another few weeks, I think, and then they um, purposefully they deorbited, uh, it? Okay. deorbited it. Yeah, and it dropped into the Pacific. So, Paul, we wanted to chat with you for a little bit. This is um, from you know the, the cover of one of your books, De- Deadly Choices, How the Anti-Vaccine movement, movement Threatens Us All. I know that you've said that this book has made you very popular. Everybody loves me. <laughs> yeah. been no problems. Um, no, I, I guess uh, the one thing I thought was interesting recently was that, um, I don't know if any of you followed this story, but the there was a massive outbreak of a, a particular type of uh, meningococcus that occurred on Princeton's campus that affected nine people. It was called meningococcus serogroup B. And, and similarly, there was a huge outbreak at UCAL Santa Barbara. So the, the uh, CDC and the FDA did something that had never been done before, which is they uh, the CDC sort of took the lead, became the principal investigator. They basically did this through an investigation on a drug license through the FDA, which was to bring a product into this country that not only wasn't licensed, but hadn't been um, hadn't even been submitted for licensure here yet, although had been licensed in Australia and Europe and Canada, which was a serogroup B vaccine. So, so under a compassionate use protocol, that vaccine was then given to about 95% of students on, on Princeton's campus and about 50% or so of students on UCSB's campus, and not in a coercive way, just whoever wants to get it can get it. I mean, we, we have compassionate use protocols for, you know, certainly for children who have cancer or people who have cancer where drugs have not been licensed yet. Often, usually, they're submitted for licensure. I've just never heard of a compassionate use protocol for a problem for something that you give to healthy people. So it was, I think, kind of a breakthrough moment. And hopefully, it'll move this product uh, along uh, more quickly through the FDA now that these data have been been generated. But I, I, I was surprised by that pleasantly that we've done that for. It's never happened before in vaccines. It's never happened before really in drugs where you're giving to something to healthy people to protect them against the theoretical possibility of meningococcal disease. Right. Although the best T-shirt, by the way, so it's the serial group B meningococcus. There was a T-shirt, that, there was a lot of T-shirts on Prince's campus. My favorite one was, um, would have been meningitis A at Harvard. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we were chatting about the fact that, you know, we think the anti-vaccine movement is largely based on fear, fear and a complete misunderstanding of the precautionary principle. And, you know, it's a lot easier to stoke fear than to reassure people with abstract scientific data. Um, and you know, some of my colleagues and I, like David Gorski, had predicted, you know, several years ago that the, the anti-vaccine public opinion is really going to start to turn around when the illnesses that vaccines prevent start to come back and then people get more afraid of the diseases than they are of the vaccine. And I think that that was a little microcosm of that effect, that the, the meningitis scared the crap out of everybody, so they were all willing to take this unlicensed vaccine. Yeah, and it's interesting. There was, there was a difference between then Princeton and UCSB. Princeton was like 95% immunization rates. UCSB was uh, 50%. And it wasn't just because UCSB is a significantly larger uh, university. It was, the reason was is that Princeton had just had a case, and so it was easy to get students to take it, whereas UCSB, it had been about five months since the last case, so the fear had died down to some extent. But you're right. I mean, if you look at the way the media covers this story now, um, it's all about 
about outbreaks. I mean, outbreaks of, of, of pertussis and mumps and measles and, to a lesser extent, bacterial meningitis. And so, so you know, we sort of stoke the fears again, and, and right. that's helped. You're right. I think that's exactly right. Paul and Steve, do you guys see any effect by the increase, like with measles going around now? Is there anything happening in the public eye that you know about where people are changing their opinion? Yes, I just—I mean, if you look at the blogs or you look at sort of the the, uh, you know, the comments to these articles, it's you know people are getting angry, angry that that, yeah. that parents are making a choice not only for their children but also for the children with who others come in contact with. Yes, I think that the the, the tide has turned. Absolutely. Yeah, it's created a you know thanks for the measles you know kind of meme, which <laughs> is the, you know, that's what you need to, for PR. You know, something that people could easily wrap their head around. So. I was talking to Sonia Pemberton who made the documentary Jabbed, and she told me that. Um, certain surveys show that as people get younger, they are not, people don't get younger. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Poor way to put this. Uh, uh, in, in surveys of um, people's feelings toward vaccines, uh, younger people tended to be more likely to be anti-vaccine. And uh, some researchers do think because older people have seen, mm-hmm. you know, polio, they know the, what it looks like. And so they're more likely to vaccinate. Yeah, she, it's a great movie, actually. It should be coming out on Nova pretty soon. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm actually in the movie. I play the role of a vaccine expert, which I've been pigeonholed as. I mean, it's just, <laughs> I can't. I, I, wanted to, I wanted to be actually Gus the amiable chimney sweep, but it just didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but speaking of that, can you do a British accent? <laughs> no, no that's, that's probably part Neither of the problem. Neither can Jay. Neither can Paul, you're working on your next book. Can you chat about that or no? Yeah, sure. It it's, uh, should be out early next year. It's, it's surprisingly called Ungodly Acts, The Clash Between Modern Medicine and Religious Belief. Um, you got a little glimpse of it at, at my talk. I, I'm going to take the unusual position that I think that when people deny their children life-saving therapies in the name of, of religion, that that's not religious. I think the term, you know, a religious exemption to child abuse and neglect laws, if it's child abuse and neglect, then it's not, then it's not religion. It's an unusual position for me to take because I'm not actually a terribly religious person, but I'm trying to take it. So therefore, I figure I will anger everybody on both sides. I'll anger you. I'll anger the few people who actually were on my side, but what the hell. Because you want more death threats. I want, I want more. I want, to, yeah. I want to expand my circle of hate. Good, good idea. <laughs> Yeah, real quick, this, Paul, how bad is it? I mean, you really get, you're getting death threats, you're, what's, give us a, a, a synopsis of what your well, day no, is. Yeah, sure, sure, I get hate mail, I get hate email, um, yeah, I, yeah, sure, but it's not, it's not nearly what it was. It was actually much more, I published a book called Autism's False Prophets, um, which really got me, you know, sort of a lot of hate mail and, the, and did, did actually get me the occasional death threat, um, enough so that the FBI was uh, involved. So, but but I I just uh, I'm I choose denial as a way to handle this. Yeah, I just don't yeah. think that that anybody's really going to kill me. But people who kill me probably haven't aren't going to bother to email me first as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. All right. So we got uh, one of our listeners sent us a picture of this. This is a an, an exercise supplement, and he thought there was a couple of interesting aspects to this that we could talk about. Um, one is I noticed that it contains molybdenum, which is very fun to say. Uh, and 8% of our percent daily value. I didn't know that we needed molybdenum, but we do. No, don't laugh. We do need molybdenum. It's, it's, what's, it's an essential trace element, and there's lots of them. It actually functions as a cofactor. Most of these trace elements, like if you need some bizarre mineral you never heard of and you trace amounts, it's probably a cofactor, which means that it helps an enzyme do its job. And, and there's actually a genetic defect. It's yeah, yeah. Molybdenum, uh, uh, molybdenum 
uh, deficiency. Uh, deficiency. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you get, you, there is molybdenum deficiency. Yeah, Everybody drink every time we say molybdenum. <laughs> <laughs> can I? Can I ask? I, I have no idea. What is it exactly? It's it's a, it's a mineral. It's a um, a metal. It's in this column st- that steel is that iron is in, and it actually was used as an. It's a very popular alloy. If you alloy it with iron, you get steel that that is hardened and has a higher melting point. Um, it was actually used before, like titanium and better stuff came along. It was used to make like weaponry and whatnot, like around the World War One era. Um, so it's a it's a cool it's a cool metal. But uh, so the, here they include 5.3 micrograms of molybdenum. Um, you need about 75 micrograms per day. If, but the average person just eating food gets about between 120 and 240 micrograms. So the extra 5.3 is really negligible. But the, the more perhaps in, interesting ingredient is the liquid light. Yeah. <laughs> where, where is that on the periodic well, see, table? You know, yeah, you got a little asterisk here. And then liquid light is basically this fulvic acid plus all these other trace elements, which is basically the periodic table. (laughs) (laughs) Including iridium and uranium. I was about to ask that, actually. (laughs) But not mercury, because mercury's evil. No. Right, Paul? It's it's the wrong kind of heavy metal, right? You just want all the other ones. (laughs) Beryllium, thallium, thallium, cadmium. Iridium for meteorites. Iridium, yep. So, you know, a couple questions. How can they possibly sell this? I mean, is it okay to sell this stuff in trace amounts? Because it's a supplement, and therefore it's outside the jurisdiction of the FDA. Yeah, but Steve, I get that, but it literally has radioactive material in it. Talk talk to the FDA. You can't represent the FDA here? No, I cannot. Um, All right. Rebecca... So (laughs) we're going to talk about (laughs) teaching the controversy. Is the Earth at the center of the universe or not? You know what, Steve? If Captain Janeway says it's so, it's so. (laughs) So, yeah, um, my inbox exploded last week with everyone who wanted me to know that Captain Janeway from Star Trek Voyager uh, believes that the Earth is at the center of the universe. This is a documentary called The Principle, and the trailer just came out, and the trailer opens with Kate Mulgrew saying, uh, everything we think we know about our universe is wrong. Wait, everything we think we know about the universe is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> is that? that was Good. decent. I liked it. Thanks. Good job. It's all right. I mean, um, it's not Jay's British accent, but all right. Well, She's it's Kate Mulgrew in another, like, 40 years. Um, so, And then the trailer goes on to feature uh, physicists like Lawrence Krauss talking about, well, it's just clips of them, so it's difficult to really say what they're talking about, uh, which is probably the point. And uh, one man who I didn't recognize at first and had to look up who he was, uh, and he's actually the filmmaker, basically giving away the whole point of the movie, which is, yes, to convince you that the Earth is at the center of the universe. Everything is rotating around the Earth. Universe or solar system? Everything. The universe. (laughs) Wow. Life, the universe, and everything circling the Earth. Uh, yeah, and the, so the filmmaker is, um, is a guy, Robert Sungenis is his name, and he is sort of well known as a creationist, obviously, um, an anti-Semite, uh, a, um, <laughs> <laughs> did somebody just woot that? Really, New York? <laughs> really? <laughs> 
I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> Evan, I'm concerned for your safety. <laughs> I'm good. I got Paul next to me. He's got my back. So, uh, so yeah, he's an all-around uh, horrible human being. And uh, he... Who's the guy in the audience? Yeah, well, it's, I think... Is Robertson Jenis here, actually? <laughs> Um, yeah, no, he, Robertson Jennings is, is a horrible human being, but he has a, enough money apparently that he can fund an entire documentary about this ridiculous idea. Since it went online and a lot of people freaked out because of how much they suddenly love Kate Mulgrew, which she was probably like, I'm on a Netflix show now. Like, <laughs> could you not have loved me before? Um, it's a good show, though. Uh, it's, it's goofy. I like it. It's really good. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, people were really freaking out. Kate Mulgrew actually issued a statement on her Facebook page saying that she is not a geocentrist and that if she knew Robertson Jones was, was behind the documentary, she never would have done it. Yeah, it, but how does that matter? It's, Did, it, didn't she read the copy? Well, that's the thing. Like, you, it's, Context, it's tough to Jay. say how Context. much. Yeah, I mean, it might have been written in a way that she wouldn't. Yeah, know. But how, and how can you misconstrue the idea that everything is revolving around the Earth? I mean, that's pretty much the statement. Isn't no, but it? well, all she says in the trailer is everything we think we know about the universe is wrong, which could be used in some sort of scientific way. Like, to, but that's not the only thing she said. Well, I don't know. Well, we don't know. But you know, she the said, movie's hey, not out yet. I was a voice for. I didn't know what I was reading. That's basically what she was yeah. saying. Which, it's, I mean, it depends. Know. When it comes out, you know, yeah, we'll, see we'll see just how stupid she must have been. Yeah. Jay, Jay, the context, <laughs> the context of the quote could have been something that made her think, "Oh, no problem." You know, I, I was under the impression idea. she narrated the whole thing. Well, yeah, but that's what I'm saying. We don't know what the script looks like. We don't know how much. Yeah, she's the, actually the narrator saying. could just be bridging the talking heads who are actually saying the money yeah. quotes. So right. we don't know. We have to reserve judgment. But you can tell that about Kraus. Yeah, and Lawrence Kraus. Came out and said that he doesn't remember filming this, and it might have been. I mean, I guess he does a lot of stuff, but we we could ask him. I guess while he's here Is this weekend. Lawrence Cross here yet? Um, woo! No. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Lawrence Krauss, how well, dare did, you? Didn't we hear? Uh, didn't Lawrence say that he? The footage may have been purchased from another interview or something. Yeah. And so, they just crammed it in there to make it sound like... Right. Like or, the Homer Simpson thing with the clock to time changing. Right. I believe and yeah, I like you thing. buns or whatever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah. Uh, basically, so far, everybody but Robert Jenna seems to be uh, against the film, even the, you know, amongst the people who are actually in it. So, Is this a conspiracy theory? That the is that the way they're pitching it? I mean, it, I, it's it's hard to tell from the trailer because it's all a bunch of nebulous crap, you know, of, of people saying like things are mysterious and you know it's it's tough to say until the film comes out. But Sanjenis does have a blog, you know, Galileo was wrong. Yeah, and he does lay out his p- scientific position, if you want to call it that. There, so like, I, and you could pick it apart as a hundred things. It's all one thing dumber than the next. But one thing that I thought was fun. Is that um, so? You know, if everything's revolving about the Earth, how does that work in terms of gravity and center of gravity? So we said, well, actually, you know, like the Earth doesn't go around the Sun. The, the Sun and the Earth revolve around their center of gravity. Okay, that's true. So maybe the Earth is at the center of gravity of the entire universe, and the entire universe is revolving around the center of gravity, which is the, which the Earth is at because God made it. Which, that doesn't work either because of the inverse square law of gravity. You know, you're going to be much more affected by the gravity of things close to you than 
something a billion light years away, even if that thing is the center of the universe. There's also the problem of distant stars having to move faster than the speed of light in order to you know, make their way around. But, but so hey, you know how he also solves the, um, the parallax problem, right? Because there's parallax. Near stars move in relation to distant stars when the Earth goes around the sun once a year. It's kind of a QED for you know, <laughs> the, uh, the sun-centered solar system. Uh, he says, well, the sun is revolving about the Earth, and the universe is revolving about the sun. And that's how you explain parallax. Well, then the Earth, then the Earth isn't at the center of the universe. Right, you just invalidated your own theory with this ridiculous, you know. So you have to get like this more and more contrived, you know, rigged up epicycles. Yeah, it's like it's yeah. the epi it's, yeah, it's epicycles within epicycles. It's just crazy. But and on top of that, who cares? Like, why does this matter? Like, why would he actually have any emotional skin in the game of? Why do you think? Because religion. Yeah. Oh, it's this is. Oh, I didn't know. This that. is this okay. is yeah. astrological astronomical creationism. That's yeah. what this is. So the Earth is the center of the firmament. That's it. We're the firmament. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The Earth is the center of the firmament. So it's the firmament that is the center. Yeah. And of course, if that's true, if the Earth is at the center of whatever the universe, how that that can't be a coincidence. It it has to equal God, right? So that's the clear motivation there. You have to say yes, Paul. It's a podcast. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so right. Not uh, only gets you so far. Paul, on the don't let Steve make you feel bad. The first time we did a live show, he asked the audience a question by show of hands. Yeah. <laughs> so. That was awesome. Yeah. But I learned my lesson. All right, we've spoken before about change blindness um, and all the related phenomena. So the the concept here is that. You know, our visual system is very constructive. It constructs what we think we see, and it pays attention to only a very tiny subset of what is the information that's actually coming in. So there's an attentional system, uh, and, and lots of visual processing happening at multiple layers. One of the things our, our visual system is good at is detecting when something is moving or changing in our visual field, which makes sense. If there's a predator you know, running at us, we want to see it. There's a, you know, a rock about to hit us in the head. We want to duck out of the way. So we're really good at just processing and reacting to and drawing our attention to things that are changing within our visual field. But if things change outside our, of our vision, our, of our, if we're not looking at it when the change occurs, we're terrible at picking up the change. Um, so you mean that you saw it before? To clarify, you saw yeah, it before so, it changes. Yeah, so like you're looking. So you know now we can do virtual experiments where you look at a picture on the screen, and then if if something changes in the picture while the picture is there, you'll see the change. But if the if the picture blinks off, the change occurs and then it blinks back on. Like the the next picture is different. It's very hard to see the change. What kind and of delay are we talking about? Even even just a half a second. If 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 the change occurs with a blink, you don't see it. Uh, you know, most people will miss it. It's much harder to detect. And of course, if you're watching, say, a video, and of course, you know, Richard Wiseman, our good friend, has the color changing card trick. If you haven't seen the video, just look up color changing card trick and watch it. But what, what that and many other similar videos will show is that you could be watching a scene and um, all kinds of things, dramatic things, will be changing about the color of, of the, the shirt a person's wearing, for example, and you won't notice it because your attention is not drawn to those changes. Um, obviously, magicians will use the same technique. They'll draw your attention someplace, and then things can happen outside of your attention. It's very easy to do that. People are susceptible to that sort of thing. So that's, this is all well-established neuroscience. Skeptics love to talk about this because it's how people get deceived. 
This is now an experiment which takes it one step further. They're looking at why we have change blindness, why we don't see the change, what, what's going on in the brain uh, that makes that happen. So this is, you know, doesn't answer all questions, but it's, it's a very interesting experiment. What they did was they showed the subjects so the, the uh, black bars, which are oriented in a certain configuration, you know, on, in terms of 360 degrees. Then they show like a blob, I guess just to create a little gap, and then they show a white bar, and the subject can orient the white bar by, by you know, moving a device, a controller. And th their task is to orient the white bar in the same exact direction as the black bars they had just saw. Pretty seen. They just seen. <laughs> Did you say they just seen? <laughs> they, just, they just had Slappy. seen, <laughs> had just recently saw. No. <laughs> <laughs> I hate you so much right now. <laughs> <laughs> so what the researchers found is that the subjects did not orient the white bar to the recently seen black bars. They oriented them to, towards an average of the last 15 or so seconds Ooh. of black bars, which is interesting, but only when those black bars occurred in the same location as the white bar. That they, If it was on a different part of the screen, the effect went away. Now, what they, this, they were testing a very specific hypothesis. Their hypothesis was that change bl blindness may result from a stability mechanism, what they call the continuity field. Uh, the researcher here is David Whitney. He's an associate professor of psychology at UC Berkeley. He was the senior author on the study. This was just published in Nature Neuroscience. Um, so they said, all right, if, if maybe our brains average out images in order to enhance stability, and this averaging out may, will, will make it suppress little changes, and therefore you won't notice the little changes because your visual system's averaging it all out anyway. And this was their test of that hypothesis, and it seems to support it, you know, that there's this 15-second sort of averaging that's occurring. That reminds me of what's the mental disorder people have where they, they get too much sensory input and they can't uh, process it? So maybe that, that's it's kind of related to, like, that's our brain making it like background noise go away so we don't go nuts. Well, does yeah. That happen in yeah. Isn't that autism? I mean, they, they're kind of withdrawn because they're just overwhelmed with the... Uh, yeah, some, some people with autism have problems dealing with sensory overload, yeah, because they can't filter out a lot. But there's multiple things going on. There's filtering. People, some people can have a neurological lesion where they, they can't selectively pay attention. So it's like if they're in a room... Like if you're in a cocktail party situation, and there's all this background noise. You have to suppress all the background noise and then enhance the person you're listening to. And that, the, the, you know, you obviously have neurological processing that allows you to do that, but some people have an impaired ability to do that. So they just hear a cacophony, mm -hmm. and they can't pick out the one voice out of the background. Kind of like Jordy LaForge on Next Generation with his visor, right? Exactly, yeah. Okay. That, that reference requires no further explanation. <laughs> the, uh, but this is a different phenomenon. This is not just an, a selective attention. This is an averaging out. And what they hypothesize is that without this kind of stabilizing continuity field, um, if you, when you think about it, you know, we, we, we're looking at the world and lots of things are changing. You know, even just shadows falling across uh, something that we're looking at is making it change dramatically in our visual field. And, you know, if, if we weren't softening and flattening out all of that, those changes, it would seem like the world is constantly morphing and things are popping in and out of existence. And so that would be very, you know, disturbing and disconcerting. So our brains 
evolved, and this is true in multiple ways, and this is interesting, this is documented further way, our brains evolved to significantly favor continuity over detail accuracy. The, what's more important to our brain, because I think this is because otherwise we would be overwhelmed by changes, you know, uh, and by apparent discontinuity, it, it just it, it averages out and, and glosses over um, any, any details that would disrupt the, the illusion, the perception of continuity. Which makes also makes sense from the point of view that in the real world, things don't pop in and out of existence. So why would we evolve a visual system that is good at picking that out? You know, when we do experiments, we're usually putting people in a virtual environment and having things happen that can't happen in the real world. So it, it makes sense that our visual system wouldn't be adapted to that. Um, I don't know. I'm, it confuses me in a way just because yeah. uh, maybe I'm not understanding this right, but. As an example, everyone will use the idea like a tiger's coming at you, yeah. right? Like, and you need to notice that it's coming at you. That's a change, yeah. right? If this is right, that tiger wouldn't be as intimidating if it kind of averages out. No, no, but the, so with this is this is not going to make the, the tiger go away, but this will make the – so as the tiger's running through shadows and its perspective is changing, you're, you still perceive it as one continuous tiger that's you. running at you right. as opposed to this morphing thing that's changing because – Which is hella scary. That's yeah. even more scary. But it'll be like a hallucination. <laughs> so when you think about it, under, under the influence of some hallucinogenics, that's what you experience, this sort of morphing reality, and maybe because – these kind of hmm. mechanisms are not functioning well. So yeah. it's the same mechanism that lets us view animation and movies and things yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. exactly. All right, cool. So, so you say things don't pop into and out of existence, but remember the Joan Rivers show on Fox? It was like gone in a second. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> not a bad thing. Take that, Joan Rivers. <laughs> yeah, Paul, Paul now, it just burned you. Now I get the death threats, man. <laughs> Um, so, Evan, you're going to tell us about a new mystery discovered by NASA yes. that private citizens are helping, being very helpful in trying to interpret thank for goodness, us. Thank goodness. Thank goodness for crowdsourcing and all these great things. So, not too long ago, in a newsroom far, far away, the Houston Chronicle ran a story showing a picture from the Mars Curiosity rover. I'm sure you've all seen it. And, of course, the rover's been on Mars since August of 2012, taking all sorts of good pictures. And in the article, the writer, the author, Carol Christian, she points out one particular picture that depicts a spray of light that looks to be off in the distance. So she decided to, you know, consult her resources to uh, see what people are talking about. So it uh, made her article. And she wrote that a NASA camera on Mars has captured what appears to be an artificial light emanating outward from the planet's surface. Yes, Ms. Christian borrowed this quote from that fine repository of scientific information, UFO sightings daily. <laughs> the image's discoverer, Scott Waring of said site, said this is not a glare from the sun, nor is it an artifact of the photo process. Look closely at the bottom of the light. It has a very flat surface, giving us 100% indication it is from the surface. Sure, NASA could go and investigate it, but hey, they are not on Mars to discover life. They are there to stall its discovery. Okay. Because that's where you would go. Right. Of course. Of course, yes. And as any good reporter knows, when you take the liberty of making these kinds of assumptions, you risk making a total ass of yourself, although she has not seemed to learn this lesson. But, uh, you know, when a newspaper like the Houston Chronicle files a report like this, well, you know, the Internet just goes crazy. It lights up, and the story is going to get picked up everywhere, and it sure did. Everyone picked it up. So, I mean, think about it. If NASA is really trying to stall the discovery of life on Mars, would they have released this image? 
Right? I mean, what, smoking gun and all? Yeah. What? I mean, the, the whole, there's, a, there's a basically the cottage industry of people looking at NASA photos, looking for anomalies, and then declaring them signs of intelligence or UFOs or aliens. And it's all premised on the notion that NASA is trying to cover it up, and they're too stupid to release the to photos in the first place, mm-hmm. which it's very difficult to make any kind of sense of it. Right. So, in, you know, of course, NASA has their scientists taking a look at this, but there are people out there at the UFO sites and stuff who have their own opinions of these things, and apparently they think they are much more informed than the real scientists are. Um, So speaking of real scientists, Doug Ellison from NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory has a more likely solution. Uh, He tweeted that the image appears to be the result of curiosity taking a cosmic ray hit. So the Mm. cosmic rays are streams of high energy particles that travel through space and they can cause problems for computer equipment. It's likely, likely that a cosmic ray hit curiosity and found its way through the casing of the camera and killed off a chunk of data. And why does Dr. Ellison think that this might be the case? Well, because there are actually two cameras that took the exact same image at the exact same time. And guess what? On the other camera, there's no light. So how do so you that, explain that? That screams that? artifact. Yeah. yeah. That screams see... conspiracy to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Evan, or perhaps it was so focused it went just to that one camera, like a laser beam. Uh, Bob, you're going to tell us about uh, asteroids. So for the first time, this is a really interesting story. Scientists have uh, they've fleshed out this, the significant details about a, uh, an asteroid impact that happened over 3 billion years ago, which is, which is an amazing time scale. But not only that, not only did it happen so long ago, but it also was, a gar- it was gargantuan. It actually even dwarfed the asteroid impact that killed all the dinosaurs about 65 million years ago. In addition to that, it, in many ways, it also changed the entire destiny of the Earth, or at least some significant aspects to it. So when I first read about this, I was a little bit skeptical because 3.2 billion years ago, I mean, how could you really learn that much about an event that was 3.2 billion years ago? And one of the reasons why this thing was, it was such a big asteroid impact that, that some, of the, some of the artifacts, some of the evidence of it happening was, was actually still around. And they actually found some of it in South Africa in, it's called Barberton Greenstone Belt. And basically this is an area of, hu- of fractured rocks. And within these rocks they found evidence of, of this event that happened over 3 billion years ago. So they used these formations that they found in South Africa, plus of course they used things like just their general knowledge or the detailed knowledge that they already have about asteroid impacts on the moon and the earth and just basic physics and even earthquakes. And so you putting all that together, they were able to really come up with an interestingly detailed um, overview of what happened over 3.2 billion years ago. I'll talk about the meteor itself. It was as big as Rhode Island. So we're, this, this thing was 30 miles long. The asteroid that hit the earth that killed the dinosaurs was only six miles long. So this thing was, was many times bigger, much, much more massive. And not only that, it, it hit the earth at 42,000 miles an hour, 12 miles per second. Just an amazing amount of kinetic energy. I actually found an impact calculator on, on the internet, and I put in some of the variables, and it said that this thing would have released the equivalent of four quadrillion tons of TNT. Oh my God. Uh, which is, a, which is a four, like a four petaton nuke. So, I mean, just we can't even imagine that. <laughs> I almost just asked you, so where did it hit? <laughs> so it, we have any idea? No. Well, it no. hit. It hit what was now South, South Africa. Africa. Oh, we do know where. It yeah, hit. in that general area. But Jay, it didn't totally three billion like, years ago. South Africa was like way over here, and it was you know. But that's yeah. that's where it left a lot of this evidence. So at that time, oh, though, there's awesome. there's just 
like the equivalent of bacteria and algae on the earth. Yeah, they, it was very. You this know, is after life arose, though. I mean, there was yes, life they're on earth pretty confident. That they, I think they say that three point four billion years ago yeah. is when they, they think it happened. But that's that's just the beginning of it. I mean, the effects on the earth were incredible. Uh, the crater itself was. 300 miles long. So if you could, if you took that crater and put it between here and DC, it would pretty much fit nicely right in that space. And we've driven to DC how many times? That's a six-hour drive. You could drive six hours and still be looking at the same crater. It's just a, an amazing thing. Which does accurately describe the drive from here to. Yes. <laughs> oh boy. So I grew up in New Jersey, you guys. It's all right. Uh, you're allowed <laughs> to. Right. Say yeah. I'm allowed to say it. You're not. So allowed. what exit? Uh, what exit? One. That's right. So it also would have created tsunamis. And now these aren't the tsunamis that you've seen on YouTube. These are, this is a tsunami that would be thousands of meters deep, just immense depth, immense size, mountainous water impacting the land. And uh, it's not like a wave. In, in movies, you see the big wave crash, and that's it. I mean, you know a tsunami's got an incredible wavelength, so it just keeps coming and coming and going and just goes probably hundreds of miles inland or even more, especially when it was that size. So also what happened was the atmosphere became red hot. You can imagine this thing hitting the earth, rock, it basically turned rock into gas. So this gaseous rock was just going into the atmosphere. Like globally red hot or right where it hit? It, well, of course it was worse where it hit, but pretty much it made the atmosphere essentially red hot. It just spewed this all over. And then, of course, the winds, they would just take it everywhere. So you've got this gaseous rock everywhere. And then that would, eventually that would condense down into these like, like raindrops, these tiny little drops of rock, which then would harden and they, they, they would, it would fall to the ground. And that's exactly what they found in, um, in South Africa, they're called spherules, these little tiny sand-sized grains of, uh, of rock from that event. The other thing that it did was it, it would actually boil the top layer of the ocean. It actually boiled it and threw all this steam and, and water vapor into the atmosphere, causing it to rain for about a year. So we had to, a year of rain af after this event. So, so that's, we, a, that's a planet reboot. <laughs> it's, yeah, I, it really is. But what I found interesting is I was wondering, you know, what, why did we get hit at that time? Was it just a random hit? And it really, it was a random hit, but it actually was um, from the, what's called the late heavy bombardment period. From three to four billion years ago, the inner, the inner rocky planets were just pummeled, you know, pretty much all the time from, from these big asteroid, asteroid hits. A lot more than we had previously or, or, or since. So this is kind of at the tail end of that period. I mean, there were other ones, but this is the one where we have the most detail. Steve, I didn't, tell me, I'm curious if you knew this one. I didn't know why the late heavy bombardment happened, and it's actually because the, um, the gas giants were migrating to uh, outer orbits, yeah. and that interacted gravitationally, of course, with the, you know, with the asteroid belt and the Kuiper belt, and that just sent all these asteroids into the inner solar system and just, just pummeled us. And is that about when they think that the moon was like an impact like that. That's one of the theories that... That, that was the, earlier, though. That was, yeah, I think it was earlier. Well, like four billion. Yeah. But that, that's what you said. The, you said two to four billion, so... I wasn't three sure. to four. That's an interesting question. Was it part of the late heavy... It might have been. I mean, that was... The moon impact was even worse. That was a, a, a Mars-sized object hitting the Earth. Right. That was really... That so was, did bacteria survive? Well, from what I could, from what I can gather, um, if if there was life on it, there was life, but we don't know if it was completely wiped out or if it was just mostly wiped out. Everything on the surface was incinerated, but you know, bacteria they they could live anywhere and yeah, everywhere. like if there were deep deep ocean bacteria living on a vent right. or something. So it's it's possible, but also. But also, to, I, I think that um, this could have potentially, we, we might actually owe our existence to this event because it could have, if it wiped out everything or even some of it, um, I, our ancestors could have evolved to fill those niches that were then, that were then empty. And, and who knows, it could be completely 
original biology and metabolism oh, I mean, didn't it exist. Would, it would have to be, right? I mean, if, like, if that event happened or didn't happen, would have had to dramatically affect sure. the course of revolution on the planet. Right? Yeah, but, um, but my point is that if it, it might have changed it in such a degree that it created life that uses, you know, a biology and proteins and DNA that completely foreign that, to, what, to what we're doing. It was early right. enough that maybe there might have been, you know, really basal competition for different even biochemical right. plans, not just like body so, plans. Right. So if, it, so if it didn't happen, the life that exists everywhere could, could have been completely, not just different species. But different biochemistry. Different yeah. biochemistry completely. Yeah, that's interesting. So that was interesting. It's really scary. I mean, that, is there any of those freaks out there, like, coming at the earth? Like, just think about that. I think we're that, pretty clear. Sure not, and, and if it's that big, I bet there's nothing we can do, right? It would be really hard to nudge its course and all that. 30 miles? Yeah, if, if, we did, if we discover it early enough, sure. We could, even bigger than that, we could deal with it. But you have to know 20, 30 years in advance. And have the ships then, ready to go. And, and then have that. whatever method you're using, whether you're using Bruce Willis on too many call. Yes. Yes. 24-7. Uh, like well, if, and wouldn't, though, wouldn't we be more likely to spot something like that? And wouldn't yeah. the bigger yeah. danger be something smaller that would still wipe out yeah. Earth? Right? Yeah, just that. But don't forget, also, not just asteroids, comets are, I think, in a lot of ways worse because they're, they're coming in at different angles and they're coming in a lot faster. So we would get much less heads up if it was, uh, if it was yeah, a comet. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, a comet could be coming in for the first time from the Oort cloud right. and it comes in a lot faster than an asteroid that's you know, already right. Earth-crossing. The point is we've got to look. A warning. We've yeah. got to look. We've got to be looking ex yeah. exhaustively to prevent something. Because it's going to happen. It's not a matter of if. It's, yeah, but it's like going I to said, happen eventually. Bob, looking, yeah, I totally agree. But, man, we have to have the, the spaceships ready to go. We have to have the way to deal with it. Or the obelisk to shoot the Whatever, something. We need something ready to go. Oh, yeah, we saw it. We got 30 years. Look, we don't Bob, have shit to deal with this. Jay so has a point. <laughs> you need to fix this. Yeah, all right. I'm, wor I'm working on it. Get on that, Jay. Um, but you need Jay, to put billions and billions that, of dollars into this. Yes. With today's, with today's technology, we should be looking for it. And if we find it far enough away where it, we know, all right, this is going to happen in 30 years, believe me, we would be motivated to build whatever it takes. But the only thing, if the, the first, because we talked about this with, like, with Rusty Swigart, you know, the astronaut who's... And now what he's doing is working with the UN to do exactly yeah. this, yeah. is to look for asteroids that might potentially hit the Earth and to develop systems. The, the first strike would just be crashing something into the asteroid. Just to, you know, these are, this is not a precise fix. It's just, let's just whack some stuff into it and push it in that direction. Then, then we'll tweak it with the more sophisticated missions using gravity tugs or whatever. And, so, and that's just a big rocket, right? We have those. So I'm not sure that it would take that much time to shoot a few rockets at them. Or, I mean, we're not nuking it. That won't help. No, no. You, don't want to, you can't blow it up. You need to nudge it. So just hitting it as fast and with something as heavy as possible would be the first step. And the I don't know. I disagree. That, I think the first step would be to determine what it's made of and how is it. It could, well, be, yeah, it could be loosely no, bound rock I mean, or it could once be we see solid it, iron. After we see it and know what it is, yes. Okay. And in terms of in terms of affecting its orbit, the first thing would be just smacking stuff into it. I like the idea of just parking a, a ship next to it, and the it, and gravity the gravity would mess it's, with it. Yeah, that's a cool idea. You just need time yep. for that to work. Yeah, I, th I think that the trick though is is to is to pair yourself with an attractive movie star because then you can guarantee that you survive. That, right, that's, that's what I understand. It, it always works. Amanda Pete, preferably, but but anybody. <laughs> yeah, hey, Amanda. No, but then you might have to sacrifice yourself to save the attractive movie star. Though. Point. That's a good point. Right. right. That's oh. such such a good point. Never mind. What the hell are we talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the SGU. <laughs>
All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break from our live show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, GoToMeeting by Citrix. Jay, I was thinking about you today. I was on a GoToMeeting uh, conference call for hours today. And I was thinking of how you know how often you you must use it with the, with the guys at Sweden. We well we've got employees all over the world as well, and we we frequently will get on GoToMeeting. You know sometimes we'll do video, we'll share notes, we'll you know we'll do screen screen capture or let somebody look at our screen. It's really an amazing tool for working together with a team that's spread all over the planet. Yeah, I know Bob. I use it all the time at work. I mean, it's just one of the things that you need if you're if you're going to be talking to people remotely. Here's one of the great things about it is you don't really have to know much about it to use it. I speak to clients using it, and they've never used it before. They're into it in about a minute, and it's great because it's intuitive. They get right into it. They know exactly how to click around, and they feel like they've been using it for a long time. Yeah, and it's got built-in HD video conferencing. All you need is a webcam. You can use it on a Mac, PC, tablet, smartphone. Very convenient, very easy. So our listeners can try GoToMeeting for free, and you could see why so many people are using GoToMeeting. Visit GoToMeeting.com, click the Try It Free button, and use the promo code SGU, and you can try it free for 30 days. That's GoToMeeting.com, promo code SGU. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. So ants are fascinating, I understand, Jay. Yeah, this is a really cool news item. You ever wonder how ants who, you know, they don't have the complexity of human culture. They don't have managers or architects or construction professionals. They, they uh, don't have lunch breaks. How can they build these really complicated, the ant hills or nests or whatever you want to call them? How, how can they build that stuff? Now, I don't know if you guys saw this on YouTube, but um, a team of, of researchers actually uh, poured lead down an ant hole. And it was really cool. I don't, I don't, I'm not even sure how they figured out that it would work, but the lead actually filled in the ant hole, and then they let it dry and they, or cool, and they dug it out. Um, and how does that work? I would think the lead would just collapse all the time. I know. That's why I, I, I agree with you, Bob, because from my, the descriptions I read of the internal um, texture of an ant, an ant hole or, or a nest is that it's kind of spongy. Right. So I don't know, but it works. Don't, just imagine, you know, of course, there's a hole that comes down, and then there is a, like an array of like little rooms that they build. And it goes down again, and it, and it keeps going, and, and a lot of times it gets bigger as it goes, and a lot of times they have a parallel shaft that goes down. And the ant comparison, if you were to, if you were to ups, upsize it to human size, it would be like a skyscraper for us. So that's a pretty freaking big thing that they're making underground. So scientists question, well, how do they do it? How do these ants, who can't be really intelligent, I mean, their, their brains are minuscule, how can they possibly coordinate, do this? You know, they, like I said, they don't have manager ants that are directing it just happens so there's a few so it's there's an emergent it's an emergent phenomenon it's not planned right it's no this is really cool what they found out so there's a couple of other things i want to bring up that are related so other things that ants do that are really cool is they'll build an ant bridge made out of ant bodies right you must have seen a picture cool. of this at some like point. zombies zombies do that pretty much yeah. right yeah. <laughs> except they, they they do grab onto each other and stuff oh. zombies just you know they pile, just pile up. up yeah but zombies are also working on a very simple algorithm yeah so, yeah. How do zombies get it? Once we done. get to the end of the news item, we'll, if we have time, we'll circle back to it. the zombie thing. So, because it is cool. Let's I bet circle we can back. To Jay, Jay, there are zombie ants. Yeah, I was actually, that was it. where I was going yeah. next. Yeah. yeah. I know. Well, you're my dog. Go ahead. I don't like parasites, so they're really creepy. The uh, all right, so check this out. So, ants also make 
ant rafts, not all ants, there's some species of ants that make rafts out of themselves because flooding is a, is a common thing that happens and they developed a survival technique for that. So you look at these types of behavior and how are they doing it? Where's it coming from? So um, a behavioral biologist guy, Thurlaz, at the Research Center on Animal Cognition in Toulouse, France, and his team, um, they studied this question for 20 years. They found that there were three basic guidelines that govern govern the time and place, or like when do ants just finally decide we're going to build our home here? So how, how does that happen? And then once they start building, what happens? So the three, the three guidelines or laws, if you want to call it, one is uh, an ant must not harm a human or allow a human to come to harm. Wait, wait, Jay. What? Are those robot ants? I think you mixed up your Asimov. That, your you're ant. right. I couldn't help myself. <laughs> the second one is um, the first rule of ant colony building is that you don't talk about ant colony building. Yeah, that, that's Fight Club, Jay. Okay. Um, the third one is uh, all ants must put the lotion in the basket. Uh, it, they do that whenever they're told. Oh, no. He went, oh, no. He went there. Don't you hurt my dog. No. Oh, no. <laughs> all, right. all right, I got the real ones. All right, so the ants, they did three things. It was literally three rules that, that made all of these things possible. Uh, this is particularly for the, the building of their nest. The ants picked up a, grains of sand at a constant rate, appro- approximately two grains per minute. They preferred to drop, them, drop the grains that they picked up near other grains, forming a pillar. And they tended to choose grains previously handled by other ants, and we think that, that this is possible, of course, because, as everyone knows, ants chemically communicate through pheromones. Um, so the basic idea here is they observe this behavior in petri dishes, and then they decided to take a computer simulation and see what, what it turns up. So they, they programmed this, and so they had simulated ants. Um, they were randomly moving around in a three-dimensional space, as, you know, so, as close as they could get it to reality. Um, and that they picked up sand that was soaked with a virtual pheromone. And what they also did was, um, to simulate uh, different environments like humidity, heat, or cold, they had the uh, pheromone evaporate on a certain amount of time. So let's say this experiment, the pheromone was going to evaporate in, a, in hours, or, or maybe it lasted days, and then they, they saw what it produced by the pheromone being different. So the results were that the complexity arose uh, in the simulation almost identical. And when I mean identical, I mean, you know, every anthill is different, every one of them is different, but the, the net effect here was duplicated. So those three rules actually pulled off the complexity of an anthill. Which that reminds me of um, flocking behavior. I mean, if you, yeah. birds f- fly in a similar way. They've got a few rules, you know, stay a certain distance away from the guy next to you, and et cetera, and it creates, you know, the complicated, beautiful movements. Yeah, of, fish of do it, and, and there's fish. a lot of these complicated structures that come rules, out of right, simple yeah. rules. Most nest-building wasps. Yeah. So the um, scientists did believe, though, with complex behavior like this, they thought that animals had to have a certain level of intelligence to pull it off, meaning that they had to be what we would consider intelligent in order to do these complicated things. So this research goes a long way to show how complex structures can arise out of very simple rules. And also they were saying that this could help us understand cell behavior. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's kind of like knowing what your neighbor is doing. You only really need to know. Hey, let me give you a visual experiment. Um, let's say that you have everybody in this room was blindfolded and you only knew where the people were to your immediate left and to your immediate right and you had to pass a ball, right? We could build a chain where you could just pass that ball around the room and you only need to know the person behind you and, and in front of you. You're just basically going like this. You don't know where anybody else is in that whole, you know, quote-unquote organism, but it works, right? The ball will go around. So that was one, one good way to describe it. Thank you. I think the analogy to cells 
is really apt because that's exactly what they do. They follow very simple rules and really complicated structures can evolve out of following those simple rules. Like you grow until a density reaches a certain point or a chemical signature gets to a certain point or you, know, you only grow to the right of or to the left of other cells and, or certain boundary conditions. Very simple set of rules governing how cells reproduce and you know, a human body can emerge out of you know, billions of cells following simplistic rules, but which is, you know, the other thing I have to point out here is that creationists are always harping on this idea of how can such complexity evolve and how could things like that happen, but, you know, this is just one line among many lines of evidence that show that following these very simple rules repetitively can lead to emergent complexity that is functional. And so it, it, it answers a lot of the creationist nonsensical questions about you know, the uh, complexity. So the bridge building and the raft building follow yeah. similar, different rules but similar simplicity where yeah. if they're going to build a bridge, the ant will detect that there's no, nothing in front of them. So then it'll stop, you know, it'll position itself, and the next ant will come, and then they'll build the bridge that goes across, and then literally, like, the ants will disassemble the bridge once they don't feel the vibration anymore. And all they really need to do is know how to hook up to the guy in front of them mm -hmm. and behind them. The raft building one is cool, though, and there's a cool thing that evolved here. They will do, it's basically going out in, in roughly a circle, so when they get to the edge, you know, the ants will crawl to the edge and they'll hook onto the guy, but then they do a particular type of latticework hookup that was described to be similar to Gore-Tex, which is really cool. Mm -hmm. But the idea is that the ants will touch each other and then they'll pull away and they'll form an air pocket, so it floats. So they're actually capturing a, a little bubble cool. of air to make the, make the raft float, That's which cool. I think is really awesome. And there cool. you go. Great. So back to zombies. Yeah. Yeah, all right. So <laughs> thank you, Rebecca. Yeah. So if zombies are following simple rules, right, one right. of them, of course, is to be attracted to noise. Mm -hmm. I'd imagine they can't see well because after a while their eyes dry out and it, they're going to get scratched up. So it's really a noise or sound-driven situation, right? They don't work in coordination or do they? Zombies? Yeah. They crowd it. Yeah. They no, they, they swarm. They have a swarming behavior. So they, they defeat the enemy by numbers, but they're not yeah. really working. They're not hooking up. They're not like grasping hands and making it, it, a It depends on the genre, but it, you know, generally, yeah. no, they're isolated. And, and, but also, a, a lot of um, authors will uh, not only have sound tape, but, but actually sense, smell, scent, smell yeah, as smell. well. Yeah. So it depends who's writing about them. But, but I mean, know. yeah, obviously this is fiction, which, which we happen to like. But it is a great thought experiment because you could create a virtual you know, game or whatever where you have virtual zombies and you give them rules of behavior that could be very simple, like follow the sounds, sounds that sound human or like other zombies. So just following the sounds of other zombies would cause swarming behavior. Mm -hmm. And just walk towards that. When you bump into something, you bite it. I yeah. mean, that's you know, really, there could be very simple rules that would effectively take over the world. Take over the world, yeah. right. And it will be interesting to tweak those rules and figure out, like, what, you know, cause, and this is exactly what happens with viruses or fungi or whatever that go into the ants' brains and it gives them a different program, like climb to the highest thing you can get to yeah. and then show your, you know, flash something in the air so that the bird can come by and eat you. And that's the next phase of the, of the parasite yeah. life cycle. So it just, you're just you're giving a new, very simple program with a few rules to the organism to make it into a zombie. And that's what zombies are. They're humans who have been reduced to three rules, you know, follow, noise, and bite, you know. Yeah. Paul, uh, I would like to know your feelings on the zombie vaccine from World War Z. 
I have strong feelings about it, but you're the expert. So yeah, it's um, it's uh, it's it's an important vaccine. I think I think it should be used. But you know what's what's going to happen though? I think it's it's. Let me put it to you this way: mm-hmm. if we uh, we have vaccines like the human papillomavirus vaccine, which is a known known to prevent probably certainly the only known cause of cervical cancer, and uh, and nobody uses it. I mean, it's like we we're stuck at 33 percent for you know for for girls getting three doses. So even if we had a zombie vaccine, I think we we would ignore it. Do you think mm-hmm. Jenny McCarthy would? Be out there like warning people like the yeah. zombie vaccine gives you autism <laughs> Don't no it's gotta we have to come up with something else that the zombie vaccine would give you something like zombie autism, zombie <laughs> autism. Point, point to that guy well, she, she's certainly my go to person for healthcare advice yeah. so yeah whatever yeah, she says oh, man. so how do we get above 33% on the papillomavirus vaccine uh, you know it, it's, it's I'm not sure what people want it, it was tested in 30,000 women for 7 years before Lysitra it, it had a post Lysitra trial of 190,000 people there's 40 million doses have been out there it, it causes HPV human papillomavirus causes 26,000 cases of camp, cancer a year 18,000 in boys and men and, and and eight, I'm sorry, 18,000 girls and women and 8,000 boys and men, and we don't use it. I, I mean, it just, it's remarkable to me. What, what do people want if they, if they can't get this vaccine? And we are stuck at 33% for girls and, and, and women, and for boys it's less than 10%. I, I don't get it. I mean, when, when the polio vaccine came out, Jonas Salk had a ticker tape parade down the streets of, of New York yeah. for a virus that, that, that probably killed maybe, maybe 1,500, 2,000 people a year. I mean, this is, this is, a, this is a virus that kills 26,000 people a year. It's, yeah. and, and, you know, and, and if you look at adolescents, they get the, the Tdap vaccine, tetanus, diphtheria, acellular process. They get the, the meningococcal vaccine, which probably caused maybe 550 cases a year of meningococcus. This, vi- this vaccine certainly kills yeah. more than any of the others combined, and people don't get it. I don't know why. I mean, the only thing I can say is that it's it's about sex. Uh, you know that yeah. the, when the, the, the you go to the doctor, it's it's the se- the root it's of the transmission. sex vaccine. It, it's it's yeah. that's the only root of transmission. I mean, hepatitis B was also seen as somewhat of a dirty vaccine, but it, but that virus is transmitted by roots other than sexual contact. That's not true, and maybe it's just about you know the the discomfort of discussing you know sex with a, an adolescent girl. I mean, when when my when this vaccine first came out, I had to speak at uh, at my daughter's school. It was an all girls school, and um and I remember talking to the she was in eighth grade at the time. And I remember talking to the senior class. And I said, you know, what percentage of you have gotten this vaccine? It just come out. And, and, you know, half raised their hands. And I asked the other half, you know, well, why not? And they all had the same answer. My father didn't want me to get it. You know, and what? I think I get this at some level because, you know, when my daughter, you know, my daughter and I had a deal. She's 19. My daughter, when she was five, we, we had a deal. She could date whoever she wanted, whenever she wanted. She just had to wait till three days after I was dead. So, you know, it's, I, I yeah. get that part. It's a good deal. <laughs> it's still. And it's true. We do have this policing of girls' sexuality that, in our culture that doesn't really exist with boys. And I, I bet that if the HPV vaccine was seen as something affecting men more than women, that it probably would have a better uptake. Um, because pr- promiscuity in boys is seen as like, well, boys being boys, but the worst possible thing with girls. But your point also that a lot of the arguments that uh, about HPV are, you know, I'm afraid it's going to make my daughter promiscuous makes me think that the argument against the zombie vaccine would be it's going to make us bite people. <laughs> <laughs> When you get when you get a tetanus vaccine, now, now you can run through a bed of rusty nails. Right, right. <laughs> you're good. In the same way that owning a fire extinguisher makes me just want to set everything on fire. <laughs> Paul, I appreciate your passion in this. Like when you talk about it, you can clearly detect it. Like I have a like a problem. Like I'm at work or whatever. There's a guy there that has three kids. Um, he's a very good friend of mine at work. Um, and I try to rationally talk to him about. He does just flat out no vaccinations in his house. 
And I'm like disturbed by it. And I'm pissed off at him by it. Like these beautiful kids. And I'm like, come on, like, you just read the science and everything. And he's got such a negative thing in his head. It's so freaking frustrating. And I'm the same way. Like I can hear your tension. I'm like, I'm the same way. I want to I do something. I want to break through to these people. But how the hell do we do it? I know you don't have the answer. But we have to figure out how to do it without the, the only thing I think that will work is a massive, a massive problem. You know, a massive measles outbreak or something where people like see it first person and, oh, yeah, this is actually bad shit. We've got to do something about it. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, so there's not a year that goes by where we don't see a child die at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia from a vaccine-preventable disease, typically flu, less commonly pertussis. And, and then you get the phone call from the parent says, you know, I really, I really just don't want to get this vaccine. I mean, and, and it's hard not to be passionate. I, I think the only thing I can say for physicians is, you know, they should take the stance of let me love your child. I mean, it, it, don't ask me to practice substandard care. Send them out into a world that's becoming progressively more dangerous. It's sort of like saying, look, I mean, I, I, uh, I love my child, and, and, but I I don't really like car seats because I think it's just made by car seat manufacturers. It's all in line. It's all a conspiracy to sell car seats. And but you know, just tell me how to, how I can best hold my child in, when I'm in a car accident. And the answer is put him in a car seat. That, yeah. That's the only answer, right? And so it's it's just uh, it's, it's frustrating. I agree. Do you agree with pediatricians who will not accept? Uh, children whose parents will not have them vaccinated? I think it's lose-lose. I feel sorry for the clinician. My wife's a private practicing pediatrician. I mean, on the one hand, if you if you don't accept them, then where do they go? And they're, they're, those studies really haven't been done. I yeah. suspect they, they, they go to a chiropractor who's perfectly willing not to vaccinate them, or they go to a doctor who's, yeah. who's just starting out, who doesn't want to refuse anybody from their practice, so they'll take whoever they can get. Um, but on the other hand, the minute you do that, you've, you've crossed an important line. First of all, you have to show some caring about your waiting room. I mean, now, I mean, you, you'll have immunocompromised people in your waiting room who can't be vaccinated, who depend on those around them to be vaccinated. Do you want those people who run vaccinated to expose people in your waiting room? And, uh, and you know, on the other hand, it's, it's very hard to, so it's hard to see them when they're not vaccinated, but what happens when you don't do it? I, yeah. I just say, you know, make the best case and be as passionate as you can. And most people actually yeah. are convincible, but you're right. Yeah. Those, there's a hardcore that it's simply aren't, it like it moves from, from science to religion. It's just, yeah. it's a belief system, even though vaccines are an evidence-based system. Once actually I had to speak in uh, Louisiana and was asked the question by, it was like 300 nurses in Louisiana and Mississippi, you know, how do I get people to believe in vaccines? And I say, it's not a belief system, it's an evidence-based system. Just yeah. read the 20,000 studies that are out there. And, and then I made the mistake of saying any more than gravity is a belief system. And then I, this is a tip of everybody, if you're ever speaking in Louisiana, then I made the mistake of saying any more than evolution. Oh, yeah. Yeah. no, no. That's a rookie mistake. Hey, Paul, the thing is, though, right into that one. of course I agree. It's an evidence-based you know, position. However, I think the only way to really get through people is to make it emotional. Do an emotional plea. You know, not that it worked for me, but I mean, that's pretty much the only tool I have at this point, talking to people who didn't get themselves there in a logical way. That's interesting, Jay. That reminds me of our science or fiction segment, oh. <laughs> <laughs> which I'd like to, to transition uh, right. to now. Good segue. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Seamless segue. A plus plus <laughs> would segue again. Well, we have to take another break from our live show at Nexus to talk about our other sponsor this week, Squarespace. Yeah, it's funny, uh, you know, we're recording this ad after we returned from Nexus, and um, I can say that a listener of ours came up to me at Nexus and said, hey, I jumped on Squarespace, and I built my website on there, and he was telling me about the experience, and uh, he was just saying how happy he was that he heard about it through the show because, you know, it inspired him to use it, and he had such an awesome job. It went by quick. It was very easy. All the things that we say here on the show about Squarespace are true, according to this one listener. It's very anecdotal. It's good stuff, though. What do you <laughs> I have my own anecdotal experience. That's what I say all the time. 
I love it. Hey, guys, one of the things I love about Squarespace is that every time you, you log on, it seems like they've got new designs and new features and, and even better support. There's a ton of these great designs just when you start right out of the box so you can be sure to make your website as unique as possible. Every design automatically includes a unique mobile experience, and it will match the style of your website. And it starts at just 8 bucks a month, and you get a free domain name with that if you sign up for a year. Yeah, you can start your trial with no credit card required and start building your website today. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code SGU, and you get 10% off of your first purchase. And you also get to show your support for the SGU. Remember, Squarespace contains everything you need to create an exceptional website. All right, guys, let's get back to Nexus. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fictitious, and I challenge my expert panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. We have a theme this week. The theme is... New York City. Yes. We are in New York City. Yeah. Jay is Googling New York City right now. <laughs> so I just want to see what's going on tonight. Cheating. And there are four items. Four items. Four. 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 There are four items. <laughs> All four All right. Items. Here we go. 25% of Manhattan rests on landfill. Number two. Mayor LaGuardia banned pinball machines in the city and spearheaded raids in which the machines were destroyed with sledgehammers. Item number three, the Dutch did in fact purchase Manhattan from the local natives for beads and other trinkets of little value. And item number four, in 1906, the Bronx Zoo kept a human on display, an African presented as the missing link. (laughs) Oh boy. All right, so we're going to start by polling the audience. We're going to have everybody raise your hands. Uh, we'll go with the applause thing, I guess. All right. If you think the item about landfill is the fiction, applaud. All right. If you think the item about the pinball machines is the fiction, then applaud. If you think the item about the Dutch purchasing for beads is the fiction, then applaud. And if you think the item about the Bronx Zoo displaying the missing link is the fiction, applaud. Okay, so one, two, and four are about equal, and there's a clear preference for number three is what I'm hearing. So we're going to, Paul, we're going to start over here with you as our guest. You're going to go first. So just give us a quick analysis of each of the items. I caution you, if you know for absolutely certain about any of the ones, just pretend like you don't. Just give us a reason why you think it's true. I won't have to pretend. I know absolutely nothing about this. So try to pick which one you think is the fiction and try to convince the audience of your point of view. Wait, so I'm picking the one that, that, that is not true, that's, that you think is not true. It's not true, and I'm trying to convince them that it's not true. Yes, that's okay. correct. Got it. Yeah. Okay. That, that the Dutch would have purchased Manhattan for beads and trinkets. Yeah, mm-hmm. th- I think that's not true. And then the reason is is that I don't know if you've ever dealt with Cushman Wakefield here, but they are, they are much tougher than that. So I, I think that that's just uh, not possible. Okay. So you're going to go with the audience on yeah, that. Yeah, I'm going to okay. go with the audience. All right. Evan. Um, so real quick, 25% of Manhattan rests on landfill. I think that one's right. Um, probably the whole outer edge of Manhattan, you know, it's at, you know, World Trade Center, obviously, that's where they 
brought in all that landfill to do that, so they must have done it all over the place. I think that's right. Uh, Mayor LaGuardia banned pinball machines. Um, yeah, not de Blasio, huh? Okay. Uh, <laughs> I have no idea. Never heard that before. I didn't know who Mary LaGuardia was, but uh, sure, uh, why not? Yeah, the Dutch, um, so I always thought it was, you know, they, they, they traded like $26 worth of blankets with smallpox uh, <laughs> infected in them, right, or, so, or something like that. But, you know, uh, beads and other trinkets, a little value. I, I'm also thinking that this one's going to be turn out to be the fiction, you know, because it's kind of, or it has been, you know, uh, in school, burned into our brains that, yes, this is what happened, this is what happened, and how many times do we find out when we do research by ourselves that, no, that's not really what happened, it's something else entirely. And then the last one, Bronx Zoo kept a human on display, 1906. Yeah, 1906, I mean, sure, anything was going on then, so. <laughs> Dutch fiction. Okay, Jay? Okay, um, I mean, I know that Chicago increased its size because of the Chicago fire, right? That They pushed all that debris out. I had never heard about Manhattan resting on landfill, but, I, you know, sure, I can, I can totally believe that because uh, dealing with waste is a huge problem, and it, today, even, even with modern sanitation, it's a huge problem. I mean, we truck, uh, Manhattan trucks its waste to other states to, to manage it, so such a bad problem. Um, so sure, in the beginning, yeah, I could see that, just throwing it in the water and get built up. Um, the thing about the pinball machines with Mayor LaGuardia, like that is really weird. I'm I was sitting here thinking, like, what? What did he not like about these freaking pinball machines? Like, were, was it maybe it was like a hub where teenage kids were like doing bad stuff? You know, like the hangout. Let's go to where the pinball machines are. And he's like, I don't know. But what else? What else could it be? You know, Steve said here that he, he destroyed them. He banned the pinball machines. I mean, it, it maybe I don't know. Maybe there's a legitimate reason, like there was something dangerous about them or whatever. I don't know. That's interesting. The one about the Dutch purchasing Manhattan, I thought that there was there was actual mon, real money exchanging hands there, so I don't think that that one is true. And the last one about the Bronx Zoo, I, 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 I'm shocked that I hadn't heard of this before, uh, but because I'm thinking that the, the, the purchase price of Manhattan uh, is, is fake, what Steve said, this one has to be true, and that's pretty bad that they did that. It's like, really? Okay, anyway, there you go. So the Dutch. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Rebecca. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I, at first, when you read the pinball one, I was like, "That's got to be the fiction." But uh, then you read the next one. Uh, I, <laughs> I, um, I do believe I remember hearing that that's um, a myth. I feel like the Dutch just took it, um, but I, I, I'm, I'm not sure exactly. But that I, so I'm with the audience on that. The Bronx Zoo one. I mean, that definitely happened. I've seen photos of things like that, but I don't know if it's happened at the Bronx Zoo, but absolutely, it's unfortunately very believable. Landfill thing, very common in many cities, so yeah. Uh, and yeah, the pinball, I love that. I, know, I love way. that. I'm going to, like, suddenly, like, I've always loved pinball, but now it feels even sexier. Because <laughs> you know that's what it was about. You know, like, some teens were caught humping on a pinball machine or something, <laughs> and he's like, no more. Or maybe they were humping the pinball machine. Maybe. There are plungers. Yeah. That's where Tilt came from? I don't know. Tilt. So, yeah, anyway. <laughs> All um, right. Thank you, everybody. All right. Bob? Yeah, everybody makes a lot of sense. The, the landfill makes sense. You put the garbage at the outskirts of the city, but the, and then you, it gets a lot bigger. So, of course, it's all still there. They're not going to want to move it. The pinball one's a lot of fun. Um, I think that I could see, you know, in the early days thinking that it was some evil entertainment or perhaps it was associated with some behavior. And so I can, I can kind of make sense of that. Um, and uh, the missing link one, yeah, 1906. I mean, 
that's not a surprise, although I've never, I've never seen that before. Yeah, the, the Dutch one with the local natives, yeah, I mean, that's, I, mean I, don't, I don't have specific knowledge about it, but that's generally considered to be a myth, I think. So that's fiction, I think. I okay, hope. so it sounds like the audience convinced you guys. Um, They're a smart go. group and good looking. <laughs> <laughs> let's, see, let's see if, if we've con convinced more people. So do, who thinks uh, landfill is fiction? Quickly, applaud. The pinball machines is the fiction. Not a lot of people. The Dutch. And the missing link at the Bronx Zoo. All right, so not very different. I'm so, nervous. So, I'm nervous. Larry and Kate were clapping very loudly. That makes me very nervous. <laughs> All right. Well, let's take these in order. We'll start with number one. 25% of Manhattan rests on landfill. Only a few people, nobody, no, none of, nobody on the stage, a few people in the audience think that one is the fiction, and that one is science. Ah! But, but landfill doesn't necessarily mean garbage. It could just mean dirt. dirt. Yeah. That yeah. also qualifies as landfill. And yeah, that's absolutely true. And it's huh. mainly at the southern end of Manhattan. So Manhattan, the southern tip has been expanding over the years. You can actually see a map of the coastline expanding you know, decade by decade. Um, mainly just to, to literally make more land to build more stuff. Um, and also a lot of it had to do with, you know, a lot of Manhattan was kind of swampy and they had to drain it and then et cetera. So it was, you know, part of the whole development of Manhattan. All right, let's go to number two. Okay. Mayor LaGuardia banned pinball machines in the city and spearheaded raids in which the machines were destroyed with sledgehammers. Evan, did I hear you say you don't know who Mayor LaGuardia was? No, no, I said I did know. Oh, okay, I did know, yeah. yes. <laughs> He's the guy who built that airport, right? I thought that was John Kennedy. <laughs> he was a great mayor. He read when uh, the power went out. He read the comics, or there was something where he had to read the comics to kids over the radio. Yeah, not if the power went out. No, the Guardian. Yeah, oh. he was an iconic uh, mayor. Yeah, guy, absolutely. Yeah. So this one is science. Aha! Very interesting. Uh, in the early 1940s, uh, nobody said the magic words as to why the pinball machines. Gambling. It was oh, considered gambling. That was ga well, how? How is it a gambling? Because it was considered to be a game of luck, mm. not skill. They Doesn't thought it was gambling, and he also thought it was con contributing to the delinquency of children <laughs> who were being... It. Who, but it was ah. more that they were being rooked out of their nickels and dimes by the machine. The evil machines were obsessing them, and they were plunking all of their so money. So was this like the that. first video game type deal? Cause I like guess you, so. You put it in, you play the game, that's what it cost to play yeah. the game. Did it, it didn't have a payout. No, okay. there was no payout. It was just you put your money in and you played your game. So yeah. guess, how, guess when, the, guess when the, the pinball machine banning in New York ended? Started in the early 1940s. 1910. <laughs> 1976. What? 1976. Wow. It must not have been enforced, right? Oh, I, I, I doubt they were enforcing it in the 70s yeah. too much. Um, I just imagine a cop just walking around with a sledgehammer. What's that? There was actually a court case uh, in which it was ended, and uh, a representative of like the ga a gaming company demonstrated in court that pinball machines were a game of skill, not luck. So like he would call where he was going to hit, you know, and then he did it, and so he demonstrated that it was a game of skill, not luck, wait, wait, this, it wasn't gambling. That had to happen in the 70s? Yes, They didn't 76. just go, oh, look at this old dumb law we have on the books, let's get rid of it. The guy actually had to do a demonstration? And That's how right. has that not been recreated in a Law & Order episode yet? <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, let's go on to number three. The Dutch did, in fact, purchase Manhattan from the local natives for beads and other trinkets of little value. The majority of people, including the entire uh, skeptics up here on stage with me, think that that one is the fiction, and that one is the fiction. Yay! Good job, everyone. But the Dutch did, in fact, purchase Manhattan. They didn't just take it. They did purchase it from probably the Lenape tribe, which was the local tribe of the I thought it was the Canarsie Indians. 1626. They bought it for 60 guilders worth of goods, axes, iron kettles, and wool clothing, some of which may have smallpox. So, <laughs> I've heard that that's a bit of a myth yeah. as well. Yeah, but yeah. I can't really it's not known. It. There's one document yeah. Yeah. that says that they did this, and they, and, but they specifically mentioned 60 guilders, which was real money. It wasn't worthless trinkets. It was stuff that the Indians could actually use, the Native Americans. So, um, and the idea, wasn't it, did I read this correctly, but the idea to them of selling land was really foreign to That's them? right. So they also point out that they yeah. may not have realized what they were doing because they didn't have the same concept of land ownership that the white man did. So they may have thought that they were just giving them permission to use the land. Mm. Sure, you could use the land if you give us all this stuff. Not like a, you, know, you own it in perpetuity, you know, which is what they were, the document they were signing. So, yeah, that probably wasn't fair. Also, they, the Dutch also purchased Staten Island for also 60 guilders worth of stuff. Of same kind of, of goods. So, not, not as good a deal. Not as good a deal? Alright, and... Which means in Which means. 1906, the Bronx Zoo kept a human on display, an African presented as the missing link is science. That one is real. Do you have uh, to end with two really depressing things? Yeah. <laughs> it, of, it is New York. Of disenfranchised. <laughs> so, wow. Wait, wait. I, I, Steve, I don't know if you know this, but... Did they keep him in the cage like overnight? Like no, that's no, this, for a year. No, no, no. But did they like? All right, you sit in here for these eight hours, and then you can go and hang out in the back. You know, like did they make him live like an animal? Um, he was living conditions were pretty poor, but no, he wasn't just in a cage all the time. All right. So this was uh, it was a, a Congolese pygmy uh, by the name of Oda Benga, uh, whose whole family was wiped out, and so he was rescued. Um, was kept, you know, in a display like like an animal at the Bronx Zoo. Was presented as the missing link, but was not a popular display. And there was actually a huge public backlash against the Bronx Zoo for this. And after a year, they bet they caved into public pressure and closed the display. Oda actually, you know, had a very, you know, not only a very sad life, and this was obviously a tragic episode in that. Uh, shortly after that, Oda did commit su- ritual suicide. Yeah. Um, did end his own life. Yeah. Aww. So very, very sad episode. But yeah, it's, you know, this is a hundred years ago, uh, a little bit over a hundred years ago. You think how much times have changed? I mean, imagine keeping a person in a zoo, because at the time, you know, this was it, it, it was actually common to think of other races, other races, quote unquote, as subspecies, as, yeah. you know, as animals, as, as, as not fully human. This was not just um, just popular racism, but there actually were scientists yeah. who were trying yeah. to build a case that for this. You know, the, uh, Stephen Jay Gould wrote the book The Mismeasure of Man, where he d- discusses about scientists who were like measuring cranial capacities of different racial groups and show and of course they always came out that whatever race they were happened to have the biggest cranial capacity and you know whatever the, and then the the physiognomy of measuring angles of foreheads and noses and jaws and everything it was all pseudoscience it was all cultural confirmation confirmation bias I mean, it's but so it crazy. leads to stuff like this it's like the pl- the original planet of the apes where they had them 
in cages on, and then they had stuffed right. humans in there. Like that's yeah. that's too cl- that's too. There close was a to Twilight re- Zone episode too. Remember where the the spaceship yeah. gets captured, and then their man member was in yeah. a yes. cage. And yeah. a Futurama episode. Yeah, man yes. in his natural habitat in the living room. <laughs> that's right. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Exactly right. Exactly. All right. Well, good work, everybody. Give yourselves a round of applause. <laughs> I mean, I know you're all feeling super depressed right now, but. <laughs> Um, so I think we have time for one question. Hello. I adore all six of you completely you. and utterly, but my question is for Jay. Uh, I have a son, Max. He's 18 months. Cranial sacral, amber necklaces, uh, cord banking. Being a parent introduces you to a whole new world of woo yeah. that in a very intimate way, a very in-your-face communal way. Uh, I was wondering if there anything in particular that you've been introduced to uh, as a new parent that stood out to you as, oh, my God. Like, you know, something like pseudoscientific that was yeah, really, yeah, really yeah, bad? Yeah. Like something that you really weren't introduced to before. Um, that's a good question. I mean, it's been a lot. You know, I've been re- reading a lot. I can't think of any, anything standout um, because I, I'd heard of some of these things but didn't do complete research on it. I mean, yeah, like the amber necklace thing, there's a lot of woo about that. There's a lot of... Uh, how about organic what's, baby food? Yeah, Wait, like what's the, the amber necklace thing? Yeah, for teething, you know, it's like a piece of amber that they chew on, and it's not yeah. not completely safe because the bead could come off. I got to tell you though, I, you know, I talk to Steve about this all the time. I, at one point, I was saying to Steve, you know, why don't we put together some type of website or something to help inform new parents like us, right? You know, it's, it's scary. You don't know what the hell, you know, what information to believe. And there's a lot of people out there that are saying that they know what's what. Right, like Wellness Mama and the Food Babe and all these people that that think you know if they think it's right, it's right. But I'm very cautious to answer emails from listeners and like this to to say what's good and what's not good because I am simply not qualified. It's a really, really you got to be careful. You know what I mean? Like I I, would lo- I have a lot of things that I can give advice on, but I'm actually afraid to give the advice because I I don't want to be giving people. Like health advice, uh, you know? Yeah, I, no, I tell people not to take advice from me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, Jay, I just want to mention that I did start a website for new parents uh, called Grounded Parents, uh, and it's all run by skeptical parents, and so it's basically like a mommy blog, but they're daddies, and uh, and also it's it's very skeptical and science-based, so... Yeah, I mean, I, not, no, this is not commenting on Rebecca's thing. It's really, I, I ask my doctor. If I don't know, I, I ask her. I have Steve, which is easy. I can always call Steve. But you really have to rely on your doctor. You know, you, sure, do the research and everything, but your, your, your pediatrician, if you have a good one, will know what's what. And that's, I think that's my best answer. That's a big if, though, because you know, pediatricians know often the, the mainstream scientific stuff, but they don't necessarily know the pseudoscience. And you may get a blank stare if you ask about something that is... You know, out that is that is considered fringe. Um, so you do have to go to skeptical resources. You know, like like Rebecca's website. There are other skeptical parenting sites out there. Like often on science-based medicine. You know, we also deal with pediatric issues as well. You just have to look for it and see if it's out there. Uh, but I do think we need to keep. I do think that's an area where we could build up even more and more on yeah. the resource online because you know parents do need to to to. Uh, they have a million questions suddenly, and. If we don't help them answer those questions, the pseudoscientists will be happy to. Yeah. The so, weirdest yeah. baby woo though is definitely that, like carrying the placenta around in a little sack. Oh yeah, we, oh there it is. That it is was definitely the, baby, the weirdest. They, thing. they left it attached to the baby for a week. Uh. 
And if you you can go on Etsy yeah. and you can get like a little knit bag to put it in. And the parents, the, this blog I read in Fury, it's like a tea cozy. The parent, the, the mother, the mother said. And towards the end of the week, it started to smell a little musty, right? Yeah, and yeah, and of course, the comments were epic. This one guy is like, that's not a musty odor. That's rotting human flesh. <laughs> right. Yeah, you've basically left like a, a strangulation item yeah, <laughs> that yeah. is rotting human flesh with your baby. That's good work. And speaking of strangulation, I'm going to read the quote. Jay, I'm, I'm trying segues here. Thanks. Good, okay. good segue. Just as good as Steve's. Um, this is a quote from someone you all know. And the quote is, science, if you don't make mistakes, you're doing, it, you're doing it wrong. If you don't correct those mistakes, you're doing it really wrong. If you can't accept that you're mistaken, you're not doing science at all. And that was from Anonymous. Anonymous! Not the computer hackers. Not the computer hackers. <laughs> Thank you for joining me, everyone. Thank, Thank you, Thank you, Steve. you all for coming to Nexus. I hope you enjoy the rest of the conference. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.